traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen and Jenny from Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Scott. If you're a fan of the ancient world, please help us get the word out. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and rate the series on iTunes. Thanks again for listening. The Ancient World Bloodline, Episode B11, Chaitis. Deep below the sand and limestone, the water had been trapped for millennia. But they drove down shafts and forced it to the surface, and used it to make their desert bloom. Their leaders, covered in ritual scars and tattoos, rode down neighboring tribes in fearsome four-horse chariots. Those they enslaved were compelled to work the fields, while their captors lived in the cities that gave the tribe their name. Igermon, the city dwellers, also known as the Garamantes. Along with cities, towns, and villages, they also built forts and tombs, where the bodies of their nobles were mummified and laid to rest. They were farmers and herdsmen, miners and merchants, with their own art, a written language, a capital, and a king. And, though he'd pledged friendship and obedience to Rome, he found dealing with Tacfarinus too lucrative to resist. After rebel armies made their attacks, they often found refuge in the remote desert kingdom. In return, the Garamantes received a share of the plunder. There was some risk, but, to be honest, the momentum of the conflict looked to favor Tacfarinus. The Romans had withdrawn their second African legion, and the king of Mauritania had just died. The rebranding of his revolt as a war of liberation had earned Tacfarinus a flood of new recruits, not only Gaetulians and Garamantes, but Numidians and Mori as well. To inspire his men, Tacfarinus spread word that Rome was under attack on all fronts, and before long the empire would crumble. While that was pure fiction, driving Rome from Africa and Mauritania was a growing possibility. In 24 AD, the new African proconsul was Publius Cornelius Dolabella. Aside from being a former consul, his file is pretty thin, and it's not clear exactly why he got the job. 
Dolabella did have some idea what he was up against, and considered postponing the departure of the Second Legion. But that would mean admitting to Tiberius that the African situation was still out of control, and Dolabella didn't want to be the bearer of that piece of bad news. No, he'd make do with his one legion, just like Furious Camillus had done before him. And, of course, he'd solicit the help of neighboring Mauritania. Ptolemy's first few months in power hadn't been reassuring. Rebel propaganda, that he was only a Roman puppet and a weak one at that, had found a receptive audience among the Mori tribesmen, who'd flocked to Tacfarinas in droves. To preserve his kingdom and his tribal power base, Ptolemy needed to crush the rebellion. On receiving Dolabella's request, he set out with his army to join the Romans. Dolabella arranged pro-Roman forces into four columns, each under the command of a legate or tribune. He also formed companies of cavalry led by loyal Mori tribesmen. Dolabella's army then advanced west across a broad swath of territory. Their goal was essentially the same as seven years earlier, to capture or kill the rebel Tacfarinas. Dolabella soon received some critical intelligence that Tacfarinas' army was encamped near the ruined fort of Ozea. The site was encircled by a dense forest, leading Tacfarinas to believe that the Romans would never find him. This meant his guard was likely down, and Dolabella knew he'd never have a better chance to strike. He immediately dispatched his cavalry and fastest infantry to encircle the camp, then marched his remaining troops in behind them. At daybreak, the rebels were awakened by fierce shouts and a blast of trumpets, as Roman forces fell upon them en masse. The surprise was complete, and the legionaries commenced a slaughter of their unprepared opponents. To be clear, this was revenge for seven years of Roman losses, frustration, and humiliation. It was very, very ugly. Amidst all the carnage, Dolabella's overriding concern was finding Tacfarinas. Fortunately for the Romans, and unfortunately for him, the rebel leader's appearance was well known. He was quickly identified and surrounded, his bodyguards were cut down, and as Roman troops closed in, Tacfarinas threw himself onto their spears. For all his lofty dreams, his defeat was near total. In the end, all Tacfarinas was able to deny his enemies was his use as a prisoner in a triumph. With Tacfarinas dead and the bulk of his army destroyed, the rebellion quickly disintegrated. The traditional grazing lands of his tribe, the Musalamii, were permanently converted to Roman agriculture, as were many other regions that had supported the rebellion. For their part, the Garamantes sent emissaries to Roman Carthage to congratulate Dolabella and confirm their abiding loyalty to Rome. Dolabella himself applied to the Senate for a triumph. After all, his predecessor Quintus Junius Blazes had been awarded one, and Dolabella had accomplished much more using far fewer troops. 
Except, well, Sejanus didn't want to see his uncle overshadowed, so he convinced his buddy Tiberius to deny the request. In the end, the rejection by Tiberius only served to enhance Dolabella's reputation. Back in Caesarea, King Ptolemy soon welcomed a delegation from the Roman Senate. In recognition of his critical support during the recent conflict, the Senate had granted Ptolemy a distinction. The honor, which had been out of use for decades, formally recognized Ptolemy as king, ally, and friend of the Roman people. As part of the ceremony, Ptolemy was given gifts of triumphal regalia, an ivory scepter, and a purple robe embroidered in gold known as a toga picta. Selene may have spoken of the toga picta worn by her father Mark Antony during his Alexandrian triumph. And Ptolemy was also keenly aware that both his mother and father had been paraded in Roman triumphs. His unique family history likely rendered the gifts all the more poignant. I'll be honest with you, filling in the details of Ptolemy's subsequent reign is a bit of a challenge. For the next dozen years, the kingdom of Mauritania was both stable and remote giving contemporary Roman historians little to write about, especially compared to the dramatic events that would soon be engulfing the capital. What we have left are mostly snapshots, even if they do tell an interesting story. As mentioned a few episodes back, the biggest concerns for a Mauritanian ruler were frontier defense and economic prosperity. With the former now well-established, King Ptolemy was able to focus on the latter. Building on the solid foundation laid down by his parents, Ptolemy gave his support to the kingdom's main industries, agriculture, fishing, and purple dye production. In keeping with his agricultural priorities, Ptolemy promoted worship of the god Saturn, building a major temple in Caesarea and several others across the kingdom. In his Roman incarnation, Saturn was the bringer of agriculture and civilization, laws and peace, a fairly useful god for reinforcing prosperity and order. A bit more in keeping with Berber tradition, Ptolemy also introduced the cult of the Mauritanian royal family. The most notable figure of worship was Ptolemy's great-grandfather, Hempsal, a noted Numidian scholar and historian. But cults were also established for Ptolemy and Juba. Unlike his father, Ptolemy was neither a born explorer nor a gifted scholar. He did spend time in Athens, where he was recognized as a patron of art, literature, and athletic competition. Ptolemy and Juba were both honored with statues in the city's Gymnasium of Ptolemy, built by one of Selene's royal ancestors. The Athenians also wrote an inscription honoring Ptolemy's sister Drusilla, and erected a second statue of Juba atop the Acropolis. Despite the family's clear popularity, the majority of Ptolemy's honors stemmed less from his accomplishments than from his remarkable lineage and direct blood ties to the ruling family of Rome. 
In at least one case, blood ties were entwined with ties of sentiment. For six years during his teens, Ptolemy lived in Rome with the family of Antonia Minor, including her three children, Germanicus, Livilla, and Claudius. Having lost his own mother at an early age, Ptolemy may have viewed her stepsister Antonia as a surrogate mother. If so, it was largely through the lens of her family that he'd watched the nightmare of the next decade unfold. The stage was set in 25 AD. Two years after the death of Drusus, the Praetorian prefect Sejanus asked Tiberius's permission to marry his widow, Sejanus's secret lover, Lavilla. It came as something of a surprise when Tiberius flat-out refused. The issue was Sejanus's equestrian status, which rendered him unsuitable to marry a Julian royal. Sejanus knew better than to force the issue, and instead moved on to Plan B. Denied his shot at royal legitimacy, Sejanus would settle for raw power instead. The next year was marked by another uncomfortable episode, this one involving Germanicus's widow Agrippina. Summoned to a family dinner with Tiberius, Agrippina sat in silence and refused to touch her food. Tiberius then passed her an apple from his own hand, which she promptly passed on to her slave. From her point of view, the meal had been a clear attempt to poison her. From his, it had been a test of family bonds and loyalty, one which Agrippina had utterly failed. Later that year, Tiberius left Rome for an extended absence, first to Campania, but eventually to the island of Capri. It's possible that Sejanus had been encouraging such a move, but honestly, Tiberius didn't need much encouragement. His first dozen years as emperor had left him pretty disgusted with the capital. The pretentious windbags in the Senate, the endless line of servile petitioners, the open contempt of his own family, the domineering personality of his mother, and the barely concealed hostility of the Roman people, who'd never really forgiven him for the death of Germanicus. But as it happened, Tiberius's extended absence would also benefit Sejanus. The prefect could monitor royal correspondence, take on additional responsibilities, and generally run the capital and the empire pretty much as he saw fit. The only real check on Sejanus's power was the constant presence of Tiberius's mother, Octavian's widow, Livia. For the next three years, Livia kept an eye on Sejanus and looked after her son's interests, while Tiberius remained at his new home away from Rome on Capri. And then, in 29 AD, at the age of 87, Livia died. Tiberius gave his mother a humble funeral and ordered that she not be deified, both supposedly in keeping with her wishes. She was then placed beside Octavian in the Augustan mausoleum. Up to the point of Livia's death, the number of high-ranking Romans brought low, tried, exiled, or murdered under charges of adultery, corruption, or treason probably ranged in the dozens, 
Horrific, sure, and more than enough to instill a climate of fear. But I only mention that as context for what's about to come. Sejanus has just been let off his leash, and his first target would be the family of Agrippina Major. Agrippina was now the last surviving child of Octavian's daughter, Julia the Elder, and his closest friend, Marcus Vipsanius Agrippa. In addition to her sister, Julia the Younger, who died in exile that same year, she'd had two brothers, Gaius and Lucius, die under questionable circumstances. Her youngest brother, Posthumus, had been murdered by Tiberius. Her mother, Julia the Elder, had been starved to death by Tiberius, and her husband, Germanicus, had likely been poisoned by Tiberius. And yes, I have the dwindling family tree posted on the Ancient World website. Agrippina's two eldest sons, Nero and Drusus, were now 23 and 22. Though they were, by default, his presumed successors, that didn't mean Tiberius had any affection for them. Shortly after Livia's death, Sejanus read a letter to the Senate, supposedly written by the emperor himself. The letter denounced young Nero for sexual perversion, and his mother Agrippina for, well, being Agrippina, a fiery Julian who despised Tiberius for destroying her family. The letter also accused her of seeking refuge with the army, in other words, requesting military backing for a potential coup. The charges were serious enough that Agrippina was exiled to the same tiny island where her mother had been imprisoned. When she cursed Tiberius, the guard beat her so severely that she lost an eye. When she stoically refused to eat, her mouth was forced open and food crammed down her throat. Years of subsequent beatings and malnutrition would eventually take their toll and Agrippina died around 33 AD, at the age of 47. Meanwhile, her sons Nero and Drusus, who spoke out publicly against Tiberius, were also put on trial. Nero was banished to yet another island, where he killed himself to avoid being tortured. His brother Drusus was thrown into a Roman prison and slowly starved to death. Toward the end, he was so desperate with hunger, he'd begun to eat his own mattress stuffing. This was the defining image of Sejanus and Tiberius triumphant. Potential enemies high and low, accused, tried, banished, executed, beaten, starved, or suicided, in ever-increasing numbers, and no one daring to raise their head, let alone their voice, in opposition to the mounting horror. Sejanus honored as a virtual emperor, commemorated on numerous statues, and his birthday declared a Roman holiday. Prayers and sacrifices made to Sejanus alongside Tiberius. Gilded chairs erected side by side in Roman theaters. Dual consulships granted them both in 31 AD. In fact, his proximity to Rome sometimes made Sejanus even appear to be the senior partner. And so it was that, at the very pinnacle of his power, Sejanus one day went to the Senate. 
A letter arrived from Tiberius, one in which Sejanus expected to be granted tribunician authority, the power typically reserved for presumed heirs. It was the culmination of all his plans, and he listened attentively as the letter was read. At first, it only dealt with trivial matters. But then, slowly, Tiberius began to inject mild criticisms of the prefect. More and more, the tone changed, until, by the end, it was an open denunciation of Sejanus, and orders that he be imprisoned and that two of his Senate allies be killed. The Senate also learned that the Praetorian Guard had been assigned a new commander, so they'd encounter no resistance from that quarter. Utterly stupefied, Sejanus was seized and thrown in jail. In short order, the full Senate met in the Temple of Concord and immediately condemned him to death. He was pulled from his cell, strangled to death, and his body thrown down the Gamonian stairs, into the waiting hands of a Roman mob. His body was then abused for three full days before finally being hurled into the Tiber. His children were put to death by special decree, and his wife committed suicide. Other family members, including his adopted father, the former Egyptian prefect Alias Gallus, and his uncle, the former African proconsul Quintus Junius Blazes, met with similar fates. Statues of Sejanus were torn down, his memory was damned by the Roman Senate, and his name was stricken from all public records. The reason for Sejanus's downfall was likely as simple as arousing Tiberius's jealousy. According to the historian Josephus, Antonia Minor may have also played a role, by alerting Tiberius to actions sure to inflame his paranoia. But, Ironically, the worst was yet to come. Sejanus had already persecuted all of his perceived enemies with a bloody vengeance. But now the scenario was reversed, and anyone perceived as ever allied with, or even friendly to, the fallen Praetorian prefect was attacked and killed by the enraged citizens of Rome. As if that weren't enough, Tiberius soon convened a new round of treason trials to charge, try, and execute all of Sejanus's known friends and associates. Not since the back-and-forth purges of Marius and Sulla had the capital seen such violence and bloodshed. A grim coda to the whole affair was the matter of Lavilla. After initially denying Sejanus's request to marry her, Tiberius finally gave permission in 31 AD. The marriage would have made Sejanus the future regent of Tiberius's grandson, Tiberius Gemellus, who, along with Caligula, now stood next in line to rule Rome. Just before Sejanus's wife committed suicide, she wrote a letter to Tiberius, exposing Lavilla's affair with her husband and her role in the poisoning of Drusus. Under torture, Lavilla's slaves confirmed the conspiracy. Tiberius turned Lavilla over to her mother for punishment. Antonia Minor had her locked in a room until she starved to death.
So this was the state of affairs in 31 AD, the eighth year of Ptolemy's sole rule over Mauritania. If Antonia Minor had kept him updated, she'd likely done so with discretion. Tiberius, though 73, was still very much alive, and his new Praetorian prefect, Navius Sutorius Macro, was as vigilant as his predecessor for potential acts of treason. If the Julians had any hope, it was a small one. That somehow Germanicus and Agrippina's oldest surviving son, the 19-year-old Caligula, might find a way to survive Tiberius and see their family restored to power. 